I wonder if you would just imagine with me for a second if your life was made into a movie, what would the genre be? Would it be an epic trilogy like The Lord of the Rings? Would it be a comedy? Would it be a horror film? A tragedy? A rom-com? Yes, I have four daughters. I know what a rom-com is. Would it be a made-for-TV movie like for Lifetime Channel? If your life, if my life was made into a movie, what story would it tell? What story is my life telling? You see, Jesus is... We've been going through Luke and this idea of bringing him into focus. Not only is Jesus a storyteller, would you agree with me? He's the best storyteller that's ever walked on this earth. But he's also, when we take a few steps back, and that's what Luke is doing, he's writing Luke in the Gospel of Luke and then he writes Acts because he wants Theophilus to have a clear picture of who Jesus is, why he's here, what he's doing. So we need to take a few steps back. We, when we're close we see this, this young carpenter from Nazareth gathering crowds and he's teaching these parables and these stories. When we take a few steps back, we see Almighty God in human form coming to walk among his creation and he's telling a much bigger story. Yes? He's telling a story that God's been telling from the beginning of time. It's a love story, if we were going to put a genre on the story that, that God is telling, I think I would, I would make it a, a love story, that God is, is unfolding chapter by chapter. It's a love story between God and a man and a woman in a garden. It's a love story between a man and his family on a, on a cruise. Anybody know where I'm at? Okay. Noah and his family wasn't really a cruise. It's a love story between God and a heathen that he calls out from his life and says, go where I tell you to go, and amazing things are going to happen. I'm going to turn you into an, a nation. It's a love story between God and a shepherd who became a king. And I could go on. It's, it's a love story between a, a, a group of stiff-necked people and God. It's a love story between God and his prophets we were challenged last week to read, I think, Amos, if, if I remember correctly. I've been reading in Ezekiel. Man, I'm telling you, those guys have a tough life. I'm so glad I'm not an Old Testament prophet. That that's not what God, where he placed me and called me. But it's really a love story between God and his people. God and these prophets that he choose, chooses to send. And it's a love story between God and his creation because he sends his son. Do you remember the parable we recently studied together the, the owner the vineyard owner sending the servants and finally he says i know what i'll do i'll send my son They'll, they have they what did they do they killed his son it's a powerful love story between god and creation and the story is continuing to be written god is telling a story here here's here's my thought this morning and if you have a title this morning it's a it's a clash of narratives 
There's a clash of storytelling, a clash of narratives that is, ha is happening. And it's the, the clash is the story that God is trying to tell and wants to tell. And then individuals like myself wanting to write my own story. If, if, they write my, if my life was going to be made into a movie and they offered me, you know, tens of millions, I would take it and then... You guys awake this morning? I'm not being serious. Okay. Okay. It's okay to laugh in church. Just make sure you're paying attention. And they paid me money and I said, yeah, let's do that. I would want to be the screenwriter. I would want to be the one on set making sure the story ended up looking the way that I wanted it to look. You with me? I wouldn't just write a, you know, my biography and hand over, yeah, do what you want with it. No, because at the end of the day, if, if I'm honest, if we're honest with ourselves, even if we're aware of God's story that he's writing and how our story intersects with that, we still have this big part of us that wants control over the story that our life is writing. You with me? I have ideas about what my bank account should look like. I have ideas as to what <laughs> guys should be driving down the road in. Remember my Mini Cooper convertible that lost me my man card? Do you remember that? This gentleman right here took away my man card because I was wearing a pink shirt and I drove up in a Mini convertible. Your man card. You never gave it back, by the way. We need to talk about that. I have ideas of what car or I have ideas of what this look like. Now, if you're under 30, you don't know what I'm talking about. But if you're over that, you're like, oh, yeah, hey. I, I have ideas of how people should see me, how people should respond to me, how people respect me, from my wife to my kids to my grandkids to my church family to the barista. At the... See, the challenge, the clash comes from me wanting to write my story or have my life tell a story doesn't always align with the story that God is wanting to tell right now through me, through us, to this world. We see that played out over and over through the Gospel of Luke as Jesus interacts with leaders, different people in positions of power. And it, I hope you've seen this, you'll agree with me. There's an incredible clash that is going on between the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the, the teachers of the law, Rome, sometimes even his own disciples. Yes? Peter doesn't get it yet. John seems to a little bit. Judas doesn't, Judas is furious, right? It's not playing out the way he, you with me? There's a clash of narratives that's going on. And we see this intensifying as we come to this last week of Jesus' life before he offers his life as a sacrifice on the cross. If you go back to verse 19 of chapter 20 where we left off last week, it says the scribes and the chief priests looked for a way to get their hands on him that very hour. Now we need to understand the, this, the scribes, the chief priests, that kind of makes sense, right? The, the, the offerings at the, at the temple were going on, and there were priests that managed that, and they were like bosses of bosses of bosses. There were, there were key priests based on their family and the power that they held. That makes sense. We've talked about the Pharisees before and this religious sect that believed that strict obedience to the law 
their version of the law, their story or their narrative of the law was how you were right with God. We've been introduced to the Sadducees. We'll see them again this morning. Sadducees were very wealthy. The Sadducees were kind of the elite. They didn't believe after this life. We have maybe or maybe not remember the Essenes and what they wanted to do and how they wanted to respond to Rome, which leads us to think of the Zealots. And then there's this group called the Scribes. What were scribes? Scribes were literally experts in the Old Testament law. Their job was singular. Study the law and teach God's people what the Word of God said. Or if I can say it like this, your job as a scribe is to make sure you understand God's story and you teach people the story that God is telling. You study what they had, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and you study it so that you can teach others what God is saying. Does that sound familiar? It does to me, standing up here this morning. I have a singular job when we stand up here to teach. We have a singular job to study and understand God's story, God's word, and then teach it to others so that we might understand his story and we might not have a clash of narratives, that we might actually align our lives with God's story. Isn't that what the Holy Spirit is seeking to do this morning? We sing this song, have your fill this, this place and just overwhelm us, and we, we need to know you're here and show us God's glory. Why? So that we can feel good about ourselves? No. So that God can get our attention and say, I'm writing this amazing love story. I know you're aware of it, but right now the way you're living is not aligning with me life is telling a different story than, I, than what I want this world to see right now. And I want us to align. I want my story, my narrative, and your life to align so that there's clarity. So that when those who do not know God's story and don't understand who He is or what He's doing, don't even believe maybe that He exists, when they look at me and they watch my life, they would get a clear plot line of who God is and what he's doing. The scribes had the singular responsibility to know and to teach God's word. And yet we read the scribes, it is the scribes and the chief priests, they're working together, they're looking for a way to get their hands on him. This is not, they want to give him a hug, they want to shake hands with him. They want to arrest him, they want to take him out. And when do they want to do it? That very hour. Because they knew he had told this parable, the one I referenced a minute ago that Joe shared with us last week, taught through, they knew that Jesus had told this parable about them. They didn't do anything because they feared the people. You see, they, they understood something was happening. I did some study in this, this week, and it was amazing. It was, it was humbling. It was It was wow to study what we know about Jerusalem in that first century and what's about to happen. Now, the, the estimates are, are spread out. That The population of Jerusalem was, the low estimate is it was about 30,000. The high estimate was about 100,000. We have different sources, and we don't have accurate records, but different based on the, the last century B.C. and the one after that, and when, when it fell and when Rome came and destroyed it. And so these different experts judge make an assessment, it was somewhere between 30,000 and 100,000 when Jesus came into the city just this last Sunday that we looked at. 
But something's coming this weekend. You remember what's coming this weekend and that weekend in Jerusalem? Come Saturday, it's going to be a Sabbath like any other Sabbath because they're going to celebrate Passover. There were three festivals that all males over a certain age were to come to Jerusalem, and typically they would bring families. The estimates that in this weekend in Jerusalem, the population is going to surge. If it's 30,000, those experts believe it surged to about 100, 150 thousand people for this festival the ones that peg the 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 population at 100 150,000 it surges to two to two and a half million potentially potentially there was three and a half four million jews in palestine in in that in that day so what's about to happen is a crowd like no other crowd for jesus to influence we've already seen in luke what's happening Right? He's, he's teaching people. Look at verse 20. They watched, the scribes watched closely. It means they, they're looking at something with an evil intent. Their motive is not good. And they sent spies who pretended, it's the word we get hypocrisy from, to be righteous. So they could catch him, trap him, seize him in what he said. And what's their motive? You see it there in your Bible? to hand him over to the governor's rule and authority. What does that mean? It means they did not have the authority to execute somebody. That had been taken away from them. Who owned that authority to execute people? Rome did. So what what they're plotting here is that this crowd is coming, he's teaching, he's cleansed the temple, he's drawn a lot of attention, he's been making his way here to Jerusalem for all, the, all these weeks, these months, now he's here. This weekend, is gonna have a, we're going to have a huge crowd of people. We cannot, we cannot allow him to speak to that crowd that is coming from all over for Passover. We can't. Because the story he's telling is not the story that our lives are telling. Do you get that? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the chief priests, the high priest himself, they're all going to move they're going to move into this panic mode over the next couple of days. They're going to do things they would imagine never doing. They're going to do illegal things. They're going to have illegal arrests and illegal trials and they're going to they're going to partner with Pilate and with Rome. They're going to do all kinds of things that they would not normally do. But they're panicked because it's becoming clearer and clearer that the story God is telling through this Messiah, his Messiah, through this carpenter, this young rabbi, is not the story, the narrative that they have been living out before the people. And they've done everything they can to discredit his story so that their narrative remains the main story. You with me? Nothing they've done has worked. So their decision is we've got to trap him. We've got to expose his teaching before the crowds so we can hand him over to the governor's rule and authority. Here's the bottom line. They would lose everything. They would lose everything if the crowds believed Jesus' story. If the crowds believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, if the crowds believe that Jesus is the Messiah, all these other leaders, all these other groups would lose everything now before we're too quick to judge and i and i've been there i was there this week it's like how can you do this how can you i don't know if you ever ask yourself this as you read the gospel how could you not see recognize jesus when he's standing before you i would like to believe that if he walked in this morning 
once he took his mask off, I'd go, it's Jesus. Look, it, it's got to be Jesus. At least that's what I tell myself. <laughs> How can you not see Jesus standing before you? And I, I think it was a mix. Some did, some didn't. But the bottom line is they cared more about their story than the story God was telling. The Messiah was what they'd been waiting for, and here he was, and yet they did everything they can to get rid of him. You see the clash of narratives? And before we're quick to judge, if I just take a look at my life, I encourage you to do the same. Look at how you live this week. Were there not moments in your week, as there were in mine, that your story was clashing with God's story? Just straight up. How I responded, how I thought, how I talked, how I there are moments where the Spirit of God was saying, hey, here's God's story. Here's what God is all about. Here's God's nature. Here's why you're here, Kurt. Here's why you're here in 2020. Here's the responsibilities I've given you. Here's what I want to do through you, in you, and through you. And I'm over here going, yeah, but that's a, that's a horror film, you know. That's a, that's a suspense. I want comedy. Or I want epic. They would lose everything if the crowds believed Jesus is the truth. Luke 21 tells us, gives us a picture of these days. During the day, Jesus was teaching in the temple complex. At night, he'd go to the Mount of Olives to be alone with God. And then verse 38 of chapter 21 says, All the people would come early in the morning to hear him in the temple complex. I, I pray that you can just get a hold of your heart, can grasp the panic that is going on in these leaders' lives. As, I, as God helped me this week, they are, they are absolutely at wit's end. This cannot happen. Everybody is flocking to him. Everybody is coming early in the morning at 9 o'clock. And the crowds are growing, and they're going to continue to grow. And come this weekend, there's going to be potentially hundreds of thousands, maybe more than a million people that are going to come here to worship God, Jehovah, through Passover. And they're going to see Jesus as the fulfillment of that. It's going to ruin everything. This is not the story that we want to tell. So they question him. You see it there in your text. They question him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly and you don't show... You know what? I have a hard time reading this because I want to read it with a voice. Anybody ever do that where you want it, you, when you understand the text and you kind of want to read it, you know, with a voice? Are, are, do you think they're sincere? They're not sincere, are they? They're not. They want to hand him over to the governor's rule and authority. They want to get rid of him. And so they question him, the scribes, the experts in the law. They say, teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly and that you don't show partiality but you teach truthfully the way of God. You're teaching the story of God. His life and his words were portraying the story that God was revealing to mankind. We have a question, knowing that that's all true. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, I'm really tempted to go to current stuff today, and I'm not going to do it because it's going to distract us. But you know where I'm thinking, right? Because nothing's changed in 2,000 years, right? The government's asking us to do things. Is it lawful? Should we, what, what do we do? 
Now remember, they want who to arrest him? Who, they, who do they want to execute him? Pilate. So they're trying to get him in trouble with Rome. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But detecting their craftiness, their deceit, he said to them, show me a coin, show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? Well, Caesar's. There's a picture of Caesar. Well then, he told them, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. We should all go, whoa. (laughs) That's amazing, the clarity, the wisdom, the truth. The result is, Luke says, is they were not able, oh, that did not go the way we planned. That did not go, man, I didn't see that coming. They were not able to catch him in what he said in public. It implies they asked other questions as well, and they all failed. And being, being amazed at his answer, they become silent. They got nothing left. I want to I point out a couple of things about God's story this morning, his word, and the first one is here. God's word, the story he's telling, at the heartbeat of it, is establishing God's kingdom. It's establishing God's kingdom. The reality is every one of us, including them and us today, we live under, among the kingdoms of men, of people, right? We do. I live in the kingdom of the United States. Some would say I live in the kingdom of the United Nations, maybe. I live in the kingdom, the man-made kingdom of the United States. I live in the kingdom of California, or as I live, personally, I live in the kingdom of Citrus Heights. <laughs> it's a little kingdom, but nonetheless a kingdom. And I know it's a kingdom because there's these cars that drive around, and they say Citrus Heights on the side of them. They're all the same color. It's interesting to me. They're all the same color, and they got lights on top, and, and they, they do weird things. They make noise and lights, and they expect you to pull over, and then a little representative of the, I shouldn't say little, a representative, sorry, that I don't mean, I want to be respectful of it, because I, I do believe that. But a representative of the kingdom gets out, right, and walks up to the car and says, hey, what do they say every single time? You know why I, do you know why I pulled you over? Yeah. It's like the worst question, right? Because <laughs> you don't want to say the truth, right? Because uh, I was speeding, because my tail lights out, because of my, susp- whatever, you know? And so what do we all say the same thing. No, officer, I have no idea. Because <laughs> we, we don't want to give away anything. Come on. If he didn't see it, then I don't have to give it away. We live in the kingdom, kingdoms of, of mankind. And what Jesus has come to do, he's been clear from the beginning, is to bring the kingdom of God. And when he says bring them the kingdom of God, and we know that the kingdom of God was rejected on a, on a societal level, but he was asking individuals to accept the kingdom of God here and to submit to the king of the kingdom. We know that he came to bring the kingdom of God, and in bringing it, he intended to establish it as the kingdom of all king, kingdoms. Because Jesus, one of his titles is, in fact, king of kings. That the kingdom of God overrules all other authority, all over kingdoms. You've been in court, right? Well, you've seen it on TV, probably, where the judge has the power to say that word, right? Objection! And the judge can say, Objection, overruled. What does that mean? It means he is the final word. 
or he can sustain it because he has the authority. Jesus came to bring us the kingdom of God, and in bringing it, he's, he, he came to establish it, to establish God's kingdom as the kingdom of all kingdoms. Now, why does this matter in this moment of a story? Because this is going to shape, this is where the clash is going to be, begin between my story and God's story. Now, as a follower of Jesus, I like to manipulate this. Because there's times when I'm okay submitting to the kingdoms of man. You with me? Some I like, some of the authority, some I tolerate, others not so much. And I kind of play the game, right, of when these authorities, these kingdoms are good and when I don't think they're good. And as I live that out, I'm relegating God's kingdom to the back seat. What is Jesus saying in his answer? He's saying he's acknowledging the kingdom, the kingdoms under the authority of Satan for this period of time on this world, but that there is a kingdom that, that overrules all those other kingdoms. And my answer to you is this. You give to those kingdoms what you need to give to them, and the scriptures tell us what that looks like, but then you give to God's kingdom what God's kingdom deserves. And if I can say it in the context of or this this. This, this thought this morning, it means that my story submits to the story of God's kingdom. And it, 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 submission is the right word because it's about authority. See, the clash of narrative in my life comes when I think I have more authority than the kingdom of God. Now, I don't say that out loud. You've probably never heard me say that because when I say it out loud, all of a sudden it takes on a new meaning, but you'll see it in my actions my words and my, you may not see it in my thoughts, but you'll eventually see it in my words and actions, right? God's word, the story that God is telling establishes the kingdom of God. I want to give you some questions this morning, and I'll move a little bit quicker, but you might write these down. And these are questions right out of what Jesus is saying. What do I owe Caesar? That's a good question to ask. What do I owe Caesar? Well, in a couple of weeks, what you owe Caesar is a vote, right? Yes? You know, God's given us this, this freedom to vote, to go and vote. That's something I owe to Caesar. What do we owe God? What do I owe God? And everything's a good answer, but let me encourage you. Go be, because I've done that too, where it's like, I owe everything. We need to be more specific, if I can challenge that. I need to be specific in the moment. I need to be, it needs to be tangible. My, my wife is being ornery. She never is, but if I can use that. What do I owe God in that moment? Well, I'm the man about the house, you know, and I'm the husband, and so I need to establish my, that's what I owe. That's what I owe Kurt in my thinking. What do I owe God? What do I owe God when somebody gives me the wrong change back? They give me too much. I could just start talking about all these little, cause, but you, we all, we're all on the same page, right? There's all these moments. What do I owe Caesar and what do I owe God? They most of the time will not clash, but if they do clash, who is the higher authority? God. And now I'm asking myself, how do I align my life, my story with God? So they become silent. 
So the opportunistic Sadducees, look at verse 27. Some of the Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection, remember that. So they're in this temple complex, a big crowd. They're using this setting to try to capture him, to try to arrest him. Some of the Sadducees see their opportunity, and so they say they, believe, they don't believe in the resurrection. They come up and they question him. They have a question for this young rabbi. Teacher, rabbi, Moses wrote for us, that if a man's brother has a wife and dies childless, his brother should take the wife and produce offspring for his brother. So that, remember, land was all connected to ownership of the families and the tribes. And so if a man dies without an heir, what happens to that land? Remember Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi and all that? Moses gave us instructions in God's word, in God's story, that if a man that if a man's brother has a wife and dies childless, his brother should then take the wife, her produce offspring, produce a son for his brother to carry on the brother's name. Now, there were seven brothers in this family that we're thinking about. The first took a wife and died without children. The second, and the, also the second, and the third took her, married her. And in the same way, all seven of these brothers, talk about a tragedy, all seven of these brothers died and left no children. And then finally, the woman who'd been married to all seven brothers, she died also. So Jesus, tell us, tell us who don't believe in the resurrection. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For all seven had married her. And then what does your Bible tell you? Jesus does what he does better than, than anyone else. He tells, he responds with, a reply, a story that exposes really what they're trying to get to. They hope to discredit him. The text they were referring to was Deuteronomy 25, if you want to read that. But he tells them, the sons of this age, this life, marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to take part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead, not resurrection of the dead, everybody will be resurrected of from of death, not the resurrection of the dead, which is everyone, but the resurrection from the dead, those that experience that resurrection to new life, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are like angels and are sons of God, since they are sons of, and I love this phrase, they are sons and daughters of the resurrection. They are resurrected to life, let me point you back, Jesus says, to your text, to your, your scriptures. Moses even indicated in the passage about the burning bush that the dead are raised. Where he calls, and, and now he's going to explain why, he says that that text indicates the dead are raised. In that text, Moses, he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living, because they're all are living to him. What's he saying? He, he, here's the simplest way. He's saying Abraham is still alive. Abraham is not dead, Sadducees, like you have taught, that after death, that's the end. No, I'm telling you, Abraham's still alive. Abraham's alive, Isaac's alive, Jake's, Jacob is alive. And they were all alive, not on this earth, but they were alive when Moses talks to God in the burning bush. He's not a God of the dead. 
He's the God of the living. Notice their response. Some of the scribes, I love this. The the Sadducees, we were told the scribes were silent before. Now the Sadducees ask the question, and it's the scribes that pipe up. They're still there listening, and they said, whoa, 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 teacher. You have spoken well. That is a great answer. The experts in the law, whoa. I never, I never thought of it. I never thought of Moses in the burning bush in that light. Wow, that's a great answer, Jesus. That does. Yeah, Sadducees, see? <laughs> there is a resurrection. He is the God of the living. And they no longer dared to ask him anything. The scribes are now out of the conflict, the clash. We don't see them anymore having a, a leading role in confronting Jesus over the next couple of days. You remember who takes over? The Pharisees do, don't they? You know what? I, I'm going to tell you my opinion. They're off plotting right now. They're off plotting. I can't prove that. At some point in their plotting, the, crucif- the, the, the cross, the crucifixion, execution by crucifixion comes into their thinking and in their plotting. And we'll see these events unfold but the scribes, the experts in the law cannot stand up to Jesus' answer. Can I say it this way? This is the, other, the second thing about the story. God's word provides eternal perspective. Does it, did it, does it establish God's kingdom and my responsibility to live in, to submit to God's kingdom? But also, everything in the, in the, in the, in the written word, everything in Jesus' life is the living word, all of God's revelation does this. It provides eternal perspective. It does not end when this body gives up and is no longer present on this earth. Are we together on this? This is our hope. The Sadducees lived for this life. They lived for the money, the wealth. The, they had their own story that they were telling. And they were going to catch Jesus, prove to Jesus that their story was superior to his, and they failed. Even the scribes were, whoa, he shut them down. God's word, the story he's writing, provides eternal perspective. Let me throw out a couple questions. How does your future, and I don't mean this to be, okay, I'll, let me tell you and then you'll hear. How does your future shape your present? How does what you believe about the future shape how you live in the present? How does eternal perspective, resurrection from the dead, and new life, eternal life with Jesus, how does that affect your present? Right, just write down specific ways that it's shaping it. The, the, the other question is the flip of that. How does your present shape your future? There were Sadducees, and, and Andy, you prayed this, I think, this morning, that there might be some in this room that are saying, I don't know about this Jesus, and I, I, I came to church, I've invited, or I've been watching online, or I don't know, something drew me here this morning. Maybe it's been drawing you for a while. And you're, you're, you're questioning things that we keep teaching about. Somebody here this morning that has not embraced by faith the offer of new life, of redemption, of being set free from the chains that weigh us, the guilt, the shame. How does my present shape my future? Well, Jesus is clear throughout his ministry and his life. We're either going to be with him in eternity or we're going to be 
suffering apart from him in eternity. That's a pretty description, right? But he's consistent all through his ministry and his life. And in fact, it's bigger that goes back to Hebrews as well. The, all of our, our Bible, the Word of God, is consistent. What we do in this life impacts eternity. We learned that from the gladiator, remember? You know what I'm talking about? What we do in this life echoes into eternity. Now, that's not good theology, but, you know, just saying. But it kind of is. I mean, it kind of... Right? That how we live this life, it's not what we do with our works, but it's what we do with Jesus. Or if I can say it this way, how do we align all is? Is there a clash of narratives or is there an alignment? How does my present shape my future? Let me give you a verse to write down. Romans 10, 9 and 10. Read it now if the Lord leads you to or read it later. But please read it. So the last verses of our text this morning, then he says to them, some of the scribes answered, teacher, you've spoken well, and they no longer dared ask him anything. Then he said to them, they say that the Messiah, and they being the psalmist in Psalm 110, how can the author of that psalm, how can they say that the Messiah is the son of David? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David calls him Lord. So how then can the Messiah be his son? While all the people are listening, and it means to try to comprehend, so the crowd there that had gathered are listening to what he just said, and they're trying to figure out what does he mean by this question? Okay, the Lord, okay, Messiah, David, While the people are listening and trying to comprehend this, he says to his disciples, he turns to his disciples and he says this, and he's going to make application to what just happened. Watch out, scribes. Beware. It's a warning. Be careful. Be on your guard, scribes. And can I I interject here? Watch out for the story they're telling. Because the story they're telling, you're experts in God's word. They're not telling you God's story. They're telling you the story they want you to hear that's going to benefit them. Beware, watch out of the scribes. They want to go around in long robes. Here's their motive. They want to walk around. Long robe just meant a long robe represented leisure. Or if we were in England, we would say a man of leisure. It means I'm a gentleman. I don't have to work. You, you remember in Scripture where it says, gather up your, you know, gird your loins. It's a nice phrase. You get that, what that means? It means grab your clothes so you can work, so you can run. Tie up your, your robes because it's impractical. And these scribes love to walk around with these long flowing robes. <laughs> you know, I don't have to go to work. I don't have to work like you do. They love greetings in the marketplaces. The day that I tell you you need to call me Pastor Kurt is the day. I mean that sincerely. Elders and deacons demand that you refer to them a certain way and that you call me pastor. Is the day that you get together with the other leaders and say, we've got a problem. They love, the, love to be honored and be seen in a certain light. 
Watch out for them. They love the greetings as they're walking through the marketplace. They love to get the best seats. Oh, Kurt, no, 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 no. You come sit up here. You come sit up here. You should have the, the good seat. Has never happened in a movie theater. Has never happened in a baseball game. So I don't know what the deal is. They love the front seats in the synagogues, in the, in the places of honor at banquets. If it's a social thing or a, a religious thing, they want to be up front. And they devour, literally consume widows' houses and say long prayers just for show or pretense. The story they're telling is that they, have, they, they deserve all this honor and respect and financial gain at the expense of others. Because they're the experts in the law. And then Jesus says they will receive greater punishment. And it's the word for condemnation. Now, why does Jesus do this? And we're wrapping up this morning. It's because here's the, here's the third thought in God's story that he's telling. Is it reveals the motive of my heart. It establishes his, his kingdom, doesn't it? And it puts it, it offers an eternal perspective. The, you know, these are shaping my shape my story and then finally he says I, I want to expose what's really important to God his kingdom the why behind the how why do I stand up here and do this this morning that's what I'm going to give an account to God for you, you with me anytime we, we we put our lives in the spotlight and say hey I want to tell God's story. I want to speak it. I want to teach it. I want to live it. I want to, God says, that's great, but why are you doing that? What's your motive? I want to expose the motives of the heart. Let me close with, with these few more questions. I'll invite our worship team to come, prepare to lead us. Questions that I ask myself, and I, I throw them out to you this morning. What do you love? And I mean, what do you love? Not pizza, not, you know, a TV show. What do you love? That, that's going to reveal your heart. That's going to reveal what's truly important to us. What, and, and you can ask it that way. What is most important to you and me in this life? Is it health? Is it financial stability? Is it peace? Is it, you know, leave me alone? Bob, right? There's a long list, isn't there? What is most important to you in this life? And here's one that convicted me, thinking of these scribes and how Jesus describes them. What do you want from people? Or you could say, how do you see people? Joe referenced that last week, that much of the, 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 the prophets are in response to God's leaders not leading his people. They're using his people for their own gain. The two moments that we see Jesus go bananas, and I say that in a good, good way, using a whip and overturning things and just taking some pretty dramatic action, you know what I'm talking about? It was when he saw people taking advantage of people, particularly in the context of worship. And he did what he did. What do you want from people? God's word, his story, establishes the kingdom of God. His story is providing an eternal perspective, and his story is exposing 
the motive of my heart, the motives of our hearts. Why? Why do those questions matter? Because God's heart towards me and towards you is that my life would tell his story. You looked at me, you saw grace, and you saw mercy, and you saw forgiveness, and you see unconditional love. You see humility. You see a submission to a higher authority. You, you following me? That's the why. He doesn't want a clash of narratives. He wants an alignment of my life and his life, his story, Jesus' life. Because at the end of the day, God's heart has not changed even a bit. Is that this world, his clearly the story of redemption. We say amen to that, if we believe it. So that our job, if you will, our task, even as we respond this morning to what we're going to be led in this next few moments, and then we leave this place and we go out to our lives, is to, that this light, this life would be light in a dark world. That when people interacted with me, they would get a taste of the story that God is writing. That's what it means to be. Let's pray. Will you lead us? Father, thank you for these moments. Thank you that we're inside. Thank you that we have your word. And as we started this morning, thank you that your Holy Spirit is here present. Again, we pray, speak to us, Father, through your Spirit. Open up our eyes to see the truth and work in us right now that we would move from being hearers to being doers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.